So we come to chapter 11 in the midst of their conquest in the land. And we pick it up in verse 1. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent to Jobab, the king of Madan, the king of Shimron, to the king of Ashaph, and the kings who were in the north, in the mountains, and in the plains south of Chinneroth, in the lowland, in the heights of Dor, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east, in the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon, that's all the way north, up by Lebanon, in the land of Mizpah. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. And when all these things had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Now thus far in Joshua, we've seen where the Canaanites have unified to come against them. We saw those five kings once the Gibeonites made the peace treaty with Israel, then, and the Gibeonites were a powerful people, we saw that. Then these other kings were upset with that, so they came and attacked Gibeon, which brought Joshua to honor the treaty, and thus the battle, and this text last week, Sun Stand Still, where Joshua called the sun to stand still, and God did something in his universe to give a double day on this side of the planet, and as ancient writings confirm, a double night on this side of the planet. That happened. And so he's already faced individual kings in battles, Jericho, Ai, and he had the defeated Ai, and then the rematch of the victory. He's faced unified kings, but he hasn't faced anything like this. The description of these foes are very imposing because the Holy Spirit tells us that these kings all collaborate together, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude. That's a lot. If the Holy Spirit's telling us that the enemies were like the sand on the sea, that is hyperbole, but that's a very profound hyperbole. God uses his thoughts for us as the, the sands. That you just don't, his thoughts are more than the sands of the sea. Like, it's a hyperbole phrase used by the Holy Spirit in another place like that, that it's, in essence, it's innumerable. It's just, it's a profound statement. And here, we don't just read about five kings and their armies and their villages of 5,000 people or something. We're told that this is a multitude as the sand that is on the seashore. And they have very many horses and chariots. They're well armed. They have the best military technology of their day. They've got superior armament. They're well ready to go to war. And if you just look at what you see, they'd be a very imposing enemy. And all these things, all, excuse me, and when all these kings had met together, they were together. This is a collaboration of kings in their military, a multitude like the sand of the sea, and this would look, appear to be, at visual eyesight, the optics, the greatest battle yet for Joshua and the Israelites. This would be very intimidating. They had fought Sihon and Og on the other side, on the east side. They had, well, Joshua years before had fought the Amalekites, tagging the rear of the camp of Israel. Sihon and Og, and then the Battle of Jericho, which was such a miracle and so special. And then the defeated Ai, and then the victory against Ai, which was so unique to that those enemies. And then sun stands still, supernatural. So you just had sun stand still, 
and you're being established, your fame is spreading through the land, which is what the previous chapter said, and now this. It's got me thinking how this works in life. The more you go forward with the Lord, the more there seems like a bigger army around the corner. You ever notice that? Like when you really go forward with the Lord, you start fighting bigger battles and greater battles. You're like, wow, that was incredible. And then here comes, here comes another army, another battle that seems even bigger and more profound and more overwhelming than the one you just fought. You're like, Lord, we just, we just took, we just, we just stopped the sun. We just changed the universe. And now this, these guys, those chariots, their horses, it is very tempting. Well, first of all, this comes after victories too. So this is coming after a major supernatural victory another battle that is more imposing than any other battle that's been fought. And we know that this happens so often in life. You have a great spiritual victory in the Lord, something special. You have a breakthrough. You prayed and fasted over this, or you took the step of faith. You went on this mission trip. You did it. You went to Haiti. You went for it, and God blessed it, right? Or you moved somewhere new in ministry, and you planted this church. It's all going well, and then boom, here comes something that you've never been seen before of a spiritual battle that you just, it's completely more than anything you've ever faced before. But remember, the just shall live by faith. And we walk by faith, not by sight. So as we're going forward in God's will, we're, we're light going again. We're children of the light, First Thessalonians chapter 5 says. And we're not children of the darkness, but we are in darkness and we're the light bringing it. So as we go forward in new adventures with the Lord, of course, it's always a battle. And as you really go for it, they just become bigger battles. When you read Pastor Chuck's book on his testimony, Memoir of Grace, when I read the book, I was just rather amazed. It's a very easy read, but I was just amazed at like how he just kind of mind his own business. He went to seminary, Foursquare pastor. Him and Kay are going here. He works at Safeway. He does this church in Prescott, Arizona. He does this church in Tucson and this other church over here in Timbuktu, Arizona. And for 17 years, he's just chugging along. And then they end up at this funeral home here, this church in Huntington Beach. And then they end up at the little church off Sunflower there. And then they buy this big, this property that is now where Calvary Coast and Mesa is. And as you read this book, you realize he goes from one gigantic spiritual battle to another. And if you think about it, even when Pastor Chuck passed away with lung cancer and was on oxygen and all the things swirling around his personal life with his family, with the church, with the Calvary Chapel movement. I mean, it just never ended. Like the battle just never ended. As, as the Calvary movement expanded and grew and they bought properties in these different places like Vita Hungary and the property in Brazil and the vision for Bible colleges, the battle just got more intense and stronger and stronger. As more churches were planted in Europe and Africa and these places, the battle just increased. And yet, Pastor Chuck has to keep going forward and fulfilling what God's called him to do. And there's one of the most beautiful videos you can watch on YouTube is Pastor Chuck's final message. I believe it's 28 minutes long. He's got the oxygen mask on. It's his last Bible study. He's just teaching it. And then he went to be at the Lord. We have to keep going forward. No matter how, how much the multitude of collaboration of evil against God's call in our life seems, in innumerable sand, like sand dunes, and no matter, how, no matter how mighty their weaponry seems against us, physically, literally, in time, space, and matter, the enemies of the gospel, and they are many, 
Don't forget, Paul said there are many enemies of the gospel. And he warned us who those, he warned his friends by name who those enemies were, like Alexander the coppersmith. There are many enemies of the gospel. And he told his friends to be wary of them. And there's many enemies of the gospel right now, all over the world right now. And they're raising up and they're flexing. And they're collaborating. But we can't look at the horses and the chariots and their collaboration and all the sand of their multitude. I'm not going to deny it's a reality. What the enemies of the gospel are doing right now on this planet is demonically supernatural like nothing we've ever seen probably in human history. It's worldwide. It's absolutely totalitarian, authoritarian, openly a new world order trying to radically change the world we live in right now, this day. Just radical, straight up now. Change everything. Suppress all people. Control all people. And it can be a little frightening because it seems like they have more chariots, more horses, more sand, and more collaboration. But we have to remember who we serve and what we're called to do. And the beauty of the text that we see tonight in the three chapters will when we finish this study, will remind us what our real purpose is and remind us yet again that Christ is on the throne. But I I have to draw attention to verse 5, verses 4 and 5. Those are imposing. I think I'm talking broadly in general for the church, but I can even be talking specifically for individuals. If you've got family drama, you've got church drama, You've got legal drama. Just being at the courthouse today and seeing people in line to file claims for small claims court and things like that, and you just see how upset they are. It's like life is drama. And to see there's so much injustice and there are spiritual attacks against believers. And at times it can just, if, if people are coming against our business, if people are coming against our life, and you say, like, why is this happening to us? Well, a lot of times it's happening just because you're born again and you love Jesus. Just you personally in general, in your little world. And then why is, this, why is there so much open-ended deceit all around us and attacks on Christians? Because Jesus is never going to be persecuted. He said the world's going to hate us. Remember that in John? He said the world hates you. So we can't be surprised that there's demonically inspired diabolical forces working against maybe you personally in your little world, my little world, and the church as a whole on planet Earth. But we have to get to verse 6 because it says there, But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire, so Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook Misrephoth, and the valley of Mizpah eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told them. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. 
And then they struck the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mound, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock that Son of Israel took as booty for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they destroyed them, and they left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. The real issue when the enemies of the gospel are gathered together is to leave nothing undone of what the Lord has commanded us to do. We need to know what God's calling us to do in our personal life, within us, our character in Christ, what he's working on, and what he's calling us to do in the realm of time, space, and matter, where we live, where we eat, who we live with, what we do, where we work, who we influence, how we respond, that we leave nothing undone. Of all the times for the church of Jesus Christ to be completely focused on the Great Commission making disciples and fighting the good fight and holding fast the truth and having done all the stand, it is today. It's today. And where people are breaking the line and fleeing, we have to hold the line. You know, in the Battle of Bunker Hill, it's very interesting. When the British came across the bay and attacked Bunker Hill in 1775, before it was a war of independence, When they attacked Bunker Hill, the colonial army, which wasn't even the Continental Army at that time, they were holding the high ground, and the British were so orderly, but the the Continentals, mostly New Englanders, who held the line, they held the line. And even though the British actually took Bunker Hill, it was a great victory for the colonialists because their stand and what they did showed the British, we're not going anywhere. We're not a bunch of rabble, and you're not going to walk over us and roll us. You're in for a, a fight. In fact, General Howell sent back to London the bad news. Well, they, they got, well he was in London, but the general, the British at that time, they lost 1,200 troops in the Battle of Bunker Hill, way more the colonials. But the interesting thing was the colonials that, that broke and ran, they were disgraced. Eventually, Washington would inherit that army shortly after that. And the first thing he had to do is teach them, don't break the line. You have to hold the line. What does the Bible say? Having done all, stand. Having done all, stand. We cannot break the line. The kingdom of darkness needs to know we are not going anywhere. And that's what evil people need to know. We are not going anywhere. We're going to pray We're going to be steadfast. We're going to hold to the whole word of God. We're not going to capitulate the gospel and the truth. We're not going to do things because evil people say we should do things. We're going to be true to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and the Great Commission and what he's calling us to do. And we're not going to break rank and flee. We're not. We're not going to run. And really, where are you going to run anyways? It's a time of great perplexity. But we must leave nothing undone of what the Lord expects us to do. We cannot flee and break rank. We have to hold the line. You know, the left flank and the right flank in the Battle of Bunker Hill, those colonials, 
they were pretty much, they're all out of ammunition by the third assault of the British coming up. Another, hundreds of them came on another boat across the bay there. But they held the line and they fought hand to hand, bayonet battles, the first major battle of the, of the War of Independence before it was that. And they held their part of the line, but the middle of the line, they ran out of bullets and they fled and the line broke. And what Washington purposed after that is he had to rebuild this army that people would never flee, that you could never flee. You had to be orderly, under authority, in authority, discipline, and hold the line at all costs until instructed otherwise. And what I realize as I look around us right now with all the great battle coming against the church, it is so easy for people to flee and be cowardly. And wherever God puts us, we cannot be cowardly. We need to stand in the marketplace of discussion and the marketplace of thought. I saw in the news yesterday that Cal State Chico released, someone released all the names of every single person that had a religious exemption from getting the COVID Pfizer vaccine. It was done purposely. It was done to humiliate, to shame, and to cancel. That's what we're up against. The same day, you know, the FDA approved the vaccine. The same day, Fitzer spent $2.3 billion buying a pharmaceutical company in Canada. And the same day, the Pentagon said they're going to bring forced vaccines on the military. All four of those things are in yesterday's news. Throw in Australia for your Australians. You can't go 10 kilometers from your house right now in New South Wales. And the prime minister if that's the title for New South Wales. I spend a lot of time in New South Wales. Says this is a new world order. Get used to it. You can't go 10 kilometers from your house right now in New South Wales. You, can, you have to exercise within 10 miles. Excuse me, 10 kilometers. That's six miles, of course. I don't know what the Aussies are going to do. And I don't know what they're doing at Hillsong Church right now between them and Jesus. I don't know what they're doing. I simply don't know what they're doing. I can't imagine being part of the body of Christ in Hillsong right now, like how I'd respond to that. Or the Calvary Chapel in Narrabeen with our good friend Bran Hall, who we support in ministry through our resources. But make no mistake, these people are enemies of the gospel. When they take students, I wrote a letter for vaccine exemption a week ago for a student who worked his whole life to have a full ride scholarship to USC. And he's not comfortable taking the vaccine, especially government mandated. And I wrote, this is forced upon me. I wrote the letter that our body is a temple of God. Because that's, that's what I came, I had to work through these like everybody else in the last three weeks. Listen, if you want to get a vaccine, that's your business. That is, and it's your choice. And I know many of you in this church are vaccinated. But if I don't want to, that's my business. If I want to question emergency measure, experimental vaccines, being pushed by people I don't trust, that's my business. And it's not like I'm an anti-vax person. I used to get the flu shot every year. My mom would always say, Joe, get your flu shot. And I would obey my mom. When I wrote my children 
about why they should not get the vaccine, which I have a right to do as a parent, by the way. Luke's response wasn't about the medical elements, which are very concerning from what I see as I've studied the marketplace of thought. Luke just said it's unconstitutional and the government's never going to tell me that I have to get a vaccine. Remember, Luke's the lawyer and a constitutionalist. He knows the Constitution by heart, actually. He's like, well, of course not. Do you know how many people in this church I've already prayed for who are threatened with losing their jobs on September 30th? I didn't ask for this battle. If you want to get the vaccine, good for you. I spoke to someone I love very much in this church yesterday, and they got the vaccine so they can visit family in the hospital. But my daughter went to the hospital with her daughter yesterday, and they tried to basically bully her. And for, It's unbelievable what we're going through right now. We could not take our granddaughter to the hospital because they're trying to force vaccinate, talking about our granddaughter and my daughter. On the same day, this is the news yesterday, August 23rd. This is our world. And not even Chuck and Billy, these guys could have never foreseen the way this would be for such a time as this. So I sincerely tell you, if you choose to get the vaccine, that's your business and I respect that. And there's good reasons to get the vaccine, you wanna get the vaccine. But I sincerely tell you, my body's a temple of God and I decide what I'm gonna do with it. I don't smoke, I don't drink, and I don't eat MSG. And if I eat bacon, I do so at my own risk. This is my body from the Lord. And you can do what you want with your body. So if you want to smoke, you want to drink, you want to eat flaming Cheetos and pork chops and drink Diet Coke, that's your business. Just don't force it on me. My forefathers didn't lay down their lives and make great sacrifices to have people that aren't elected who we have no reason to trust tell us what we must do in an anti-constitutional manner. I am a Christian first, but I am an American citizen second. I intend to do everything the Lord's called me to do in my timeline. So the last thing I want to do is get up here and talk about forced vaccines and why I don't trust the people. And I'll just stick to the most basic thing, my religious exemption. And I got to write letters for people tomorrow. My body is a temple of God. That's my personal faith. And I am not comfortable putting this stuff, regardless of what the FDA or these people tell me about it. I am not comfortable putting my body. And as a Christian and a man of faith, I prefer to ask Jesus to heal me in Jesus' name. And I prefer to have Sam and Garrett and Chris and the elders and deacons anoint me with oil for my healing. That's what I prefer to do. I trust my Lord and Savior and his scriptures, and my life is in his hands. And I don't intend to endanger anyone else's life. But Jesus has been over this universe for at least 6,000 years. And plagues come and go. And when I studied the Black Plague, which I did in medieval times, and how it affected Catherine the Great and the European monarchs, and how they responded to it, I studied how the believers in Russia, they were willing to die with Jesus in their church with the Black Plague. And that's exactly how I'm willing to die. And I'm not going to let evil men just walk over the good things 
that we've received from other people. I'm going to pray like there's no tomorrow. And I'm going to continue to look at people I respect who are praying and standing up for truth, like American Center for Law and Justice and Jay Sekulow and people like this. And I'm going to continue to unify with them in the freedoms that we have that allow us to preach the gospel, to gather and worship Jesus and grow in our faith and share our faith. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to break rank. And I've told you this before in Revelation, in the new heaven and the new earth, you know who is not in the kingdom. Cowards. The Holy Spirit says there are no cowards in the new heaven and the new earth. And I don't intend to be a coward. And I certainly want to inspire people in Jesus' name to not be cowards either. And when it comes time to lay down my life, I'll lay it down for the gospel, but not for this government under these circumstances. Verse 16. Thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal, Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all the kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made a war a long time with those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All those they took in battle, for it was the Lord, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle that he might utterly destroy them and they might receive no mercy, but he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. And at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, all the mountains of Judah. Remember, the Anakim are giants, the Anakim. And from all the mountains of Israel, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashad. That's the Gaza, modern Gaza. So Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes, then the land rested from war. Verse 20 is very interesting in this part of the chapter. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts. Now, we harden our hearts, and the worst thing that can happen is God giving us over to a hardened heart. We want to have a soft heart toward Jesus, his character, a soft heart toward the Holy Spirit working in our life. Uh, a, Jesus looked upon the multitude and had compassion. We want to have a tender heart. We do. But we realize that people do harden their hearts. They harden their hearts against the Lord. As I mentioned earlier in Romans 1, people are given over to depravity, to their depraved minds, and they harden their hearts. So the only thing people need to do to not have a soft heart is to reject the heart of Christ. Because they'll have a sinful heart, a prideful heart, and they'll have a hard heart toward the kingdom. And the only way that heart gets soft is through repentance. Otherwise, God just gives them over, and the heart doesn't get softer. It gets harder. And I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking. And I'm sure you have too. Since we're told in the scriptures in the last days before the return of Christ that delusion and deceit 
will be on increase. We see delusion and we see deceit. You just can't even, it's, a, it's mind-bending. It's mind-bending to me, the deceit we see right now and how delusional people are that are so unreasonable, it's insane. And how many people really are delusional and insane right now in everyday life on this planet? It, I, just, I just can't even wrap my mind around it. So we see the delusion and we see a great deception and a lack of... Not, like, critical thinking is nice, but at this point we'd say just common sense. Like Thomas Paine, common sense, sense and sensibility. Just common sense would work right now. But we have at the same time as deception and deceit increasing and totalitarianism and authoritarianism of a new world order with the spirit of Antichrist. At the same time, we are told that the love of many will grow cold. We are told that children will be haters of their parents. We are told all these things in the last days that include people hardening their hearts. And we're told in 2 Thessalonians that they're given over to total delusion, which means in that delusion, they're actually completely hardened. So on the last day of the human race, as we understand it, when, when, before, well, when Christ comes for his church, because we're told in 2 Thessalonians that which restrains, restrains, and then it's removed, and then people are given over to delusion because they harden their hearts not accepting the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the delusion and hardness of heart are one and the same. And what I really see right now, because I've been thinking, is not only are people becoming more and more delusional, they're becoming much more hardened in their hearts. Much more hardened in their hearts. As they say, that frog in the water no longer feels the rising temperature, but also the hardness that comes with that. The things that are being forced in the educational system on kindergartners in America... The insanity of anti-science and all these things that are happening right now, it's just power grab at the highest level to just seize the future. It's people whose minds and hearts are completely given over and hardened. There are people that actually think, and they're in power, and they run this country, that there's multiple genders. And you can be mixed up in your genders. And as Brian Broderson said on the radio yesterday, it's It's insanity. Insanity means to be devoid of reality. And just talking about the transgenderism, Brian Broderson on K-Wave yesterday was talking about how, how they think the church is crazy for holding to a literal creation, a young earth, a literal Adam and Eve. But in fact, the testimony of insanity is to be completely devoid of reality. And as he pointed out, these people are devoid of reality. These people really think how they think. And they are insane. They are insane. Like a man in the Olympics competing as a woman in weightlifting is insane. It's just insane. And that's hardness of heart. But here's the thing we need to keep in mind with that as a church. Since the world hates Jesus, they hate us with Jesus. So they, it's not enough that we have to say your life's acceptable. They, need to sh- they want to shut down our business. They, they want to impose all these things on the church. We realize that. I mean, it's... This is reality. Like I say to my wife sometimes, I don't make the news. I'm just talking about what is in the news and how it affects the church. If you're Bonhoeffer and you're evangelical in Germany in 1935, there are great realities coming at you 
And whether you want to put your head in the sand or not, you got to realize Hitler is a real threat and Europe is going to fold and go into a global war. And 10 years later, what do you have? People like Billy Graham trying to rebuild Europe with the Marshall Plan. Marshall's rebuilding Europe, Billy Graham's preaching the gospel all over Europe. So reality is reality. And God hardened their hearts. He, the enemies of God, it says that God hardened their hearts that they would make war against God's people. That's what it says here in the text. And I'm suggesting to you that God has a plan, because all things work together for good for his church, that we see people hardening their hearts so much against the church that people in power would release these names and these religious exemption forms publicly. It's in the LA Times news yesterday that they would do this. That's a hard heart. That's a hard heart to have access to that data that's confidential, to breach that data of those students who are religious exemptions and release it publicly to shame them and cancel them. That is a hard heart. But God's allowed that. See, that's my point. And what we have to accept as the church in 2021, as we stand for Jesus, as God is sifting, of course COVID sifted, we're in it. There's no reset. We're in it. We're just in it. But what we've been in, church attendance is way down for most churches all over the world. The first wave of shifting, the things that are shaking, and that which is going to remain. And we're being shaken. And we're being refined. And we're being purified. And we're being prepared for the wedding feast of the king. The groom is coming for his bride. Jesus is coming in glory for his church. And he's coming looking for faith. He's coming looking for courage. He's coming looking for faithful servants and conviction of character. And he's preparing us for it. He is separating sheep from goats right now in his church and on this planet. That's what he's doing. And if he's hardening people's hearts against his church to reveal who really his church is, then good for him and good for us. Having done all, stand, stand. I'm not expecting an easy fourth quarter in my journey at all. But I'm purposing to not be a coward and to stand whatever that looks like. I don't know what standing looks like. Do you know what standing looks like? I just know that I'm, I'm going to continue to be a faithful pastor and I'm going to stand and I'm going to teach the word of God and I'm going to pray for this congregation and we're going to sow to the needs of this church. We're going to sow to the needs of the gospel, to the church worldwide. That's what we're going to do. But it is hard to watch people given over to hardened hearts attacking the church and doing sinister, evil, diabolical things because they have the chariots and the horses to do so without restraint. And it's hard to watch. Like Danny was praying. It's hard to watch. But we can't let it move us. We can't let it move us. Because when God gave Paul a vision of a future that was unpleasant, he said, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to me. Our goal is to be faithful. Our goal, our goal is to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Whatever these people and their agendas are out there, 
They come and go. You know, being to the courthouse, if you've been to Santa Courthouse, you know this. On every floor, there's all these historical photos, right? Huntington, 1910, Santa Ana, 1905, Orange, 1885, downtown Orange, Tustin. You see these historical photos on every floor all over the courthouse, and they're beautiful. And I look at those photos. I saw Armistice Day, 1921, Santa Ana Parade, and there's these Boy Scouts, and they're in, like, military uniforms. This is right after World War I, right? They're celebrating Armistice Day, like, three years after the completion of World War I. And they're like 10-year-olds. And I thought, you know, they might still be alive. Like 103, 104, maybe. You never know. But I thought, this is what I thought. They had their time, and they're gone. And all those, all those dictators and evil men and women of their time, they're gone too. And all the faithful Christians, Amy Carmichael, Bonhoeffer, Corey Tim Boom, they're gone and someday, all of us sharing the planet right now, we're all going to be gone. And these people imposing these things on us, they're going to be gone. We're going to be gone. We're going to be in glory. What they're going to be is between them and the Lord. And if God hardens their heart and gives them over, and they, that has them attacking us, then that's just the way it is. And we have to prepare ourselves for that. We really do. If I was ministering in Kabul right now to the local church, how do you think that would look? Would I be telling you it's your best life now? Think and grow rich? I'd be telling you press into Jesus, trust in Jesus, resist evil, and having done all, stand. That's what I'd be telling you. And aren't you glad we're not in Kabul? But the reality is we have brothers and sisters who are right now. And we share this planet with them, and our faith is theirs. So even as I talk about Hillsong and Calvary King's, King's Church in Narrabeen, and the believers down in Australia and New Zealand as well, these different places, what believers are going through all over the world, having done all, stand. And if God hardens people's hearts against us, that's what he's going to do. I don't like it. But if that's his purpose, to make me ready for all eternity, that, me and you being ready for all eternity is way more important than us being comfortable in time, space, and matter. Do you understand? Like, Because you think, like, what can you lose right now? Because you can fear losing everything between inflation, totalitarian governments, and all this stuff. Like, but you and I losing everything is nothing. All that matters is that we're prepared for eternity. That's all that matters. That's what Paul said, that these light afflictions are not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory that God has for us. And we can't, we can't lose perspective of that. Chapter 12. Now, this is a resume. This is Moses' resume and Joshua's resume. So let's read it. These are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated, whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun, from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon and all the eastern Jordan plain. One king was Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon and ruled half of Gilead from Arar, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, from the middle of that river, even as far as the river Jabbok, which is the border of the Ammonites, and the eastern Jordan plain from the Sea of Chinnereth as far as the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, the road of Beth Jishmas, and southward below the slope of Pisgah. The other king was Og, king of Bashan, and his territory, who was of the remnant of the giants who dwelt in Ashtaroth at Idri and reigned over Mount Hermon, over Salka, over Bashan, as far as the border of the Gershites and the 
Machathites and over half of Gilead to the border of Sihon, king of Heshbon. These Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel had conquered. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given it as a possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And then these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side of the Jordan, modern Israel, on the west, from Baal from Baal-Gad in the valley of Lebanon as far as Mount Halak at the ascent to Seir, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions. In the mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the south. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the king of Jericho won, the king of Ai, which is beside Bethel won, the king of Jerusalem won, the king of Hebron won, the king of Jarmuth won, the king of Lachish won, the king of Eglon won, the king of Gezer won, the king of Debir won, the king of Gedor won, the king of Ormah won, the king of Arad won, the king of Libna won, the king of Adullam won, the king of Makeda won, the king of Bethel won, the king of Tafua won, the king of Hefer won, the king of Aphek won, the king of Lashron won, the king of Madon won, the king of Hazor won, the king of Shimron Moran won, the king of Ashaf won, the king of Tanak won, the king of Medigo won, the king of Kadesh won, the king of Joknam and Carmel won. The king of Dor in the heights of Dor won. The king of the people of Gilead won. The king of Tizra won. All the kings, 31. These are resumes. This is Moses' resume. This is Joshua's resume. And what's interesting to me about this, they're, they're military resumes. Notice the contrast of these two resumes. Moses is essentially two mega kings, Sihon and Og, the ones that all other kings feared. So we notice two massive battles, two great kings, and it's past tense. Moses is gone. He's in eternity. But here with Joshua, it's 31 kings of all these different towns. So like, they're more like mayors, you know, like the mayor of so-and-so, the mayor of such-and-such. But 31, so stay with me. 31, but not done. See, Moses' resume, he's in eternity. His resume is complete. Pastor Chuck's resume is complete. Billy Graham's resume is complete. Amy Carmichael's resume is complete. Billy Sunday's resume is complete. The people, the great men and women of the church, John and Betty Stam, their resume is complete. Hudson Taylor's resume is complete. His wife's resume is complete. These resumes are complete. These people that have come before us, Eric Little, complete. I'm thinking of all the people, all the books on my shelf that have made the cut through 30 years of serving Jesus. Not many of them, and they're very special, all of them. Elizabeth Elliot, complete. Kay Smith, complete. Her resume is complete. It's complete. There's a day when our resume and legacy is complete. The battles we fought and the victories we had, it's complete. But right now, all of us in this room, we're like Joshua. It's still going. It's like the back of a baseball card when you're still playing. It's still happening. The story is not done. People tell me all the time, you should write a book. Actually, someone else will write it because I'm still, I'm still living it. The story is still being told. Our resume is not complete. What God is doing in your life, each one of us in this room, is not complete. There might be 33 kings on the back of our baseball card right now of the victories that God has given us, but we're still alive, and therefore, he's not done. It's not complete. 
And that's why when we get to the next chapter, it picks up with Joshua, but not Moses. There's nothing to tell Moses. Moses is gone. There's nothing God would tell Chuck, Pastor Chuck or Kay Smith right now. They're in eternity. It's done. It's complete. But we're here. So look at the first verse of chapter 13. Now Joshua is old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. Boom. Let that sink in. You're old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. I've been paying attention to retired people quite a bit in the last few years. I talk to people about retirement because I know retired people. I know people close to retirement. I learn things like I, I watch stuff. I watch like Dave Ramsey, like, you know, what you wouldn't do or what you would do, you know, stuff like that. I pay attention to it. So I know like Social Security can do this at 63. You can do that at 67. But, oh, what about insurance? Oh, that's okay. That's Medi- Medicare. Okay, that's like this. And, but believe me, it could all change, right? I mean, so close and yet so far away. It could all change. But what's it matter anyways? But what I've learned talking with people who've been retired people who are semi-retired. Well, a lot of people retire and then like, I'm so bored, they go back to doing part-time what they used to do, full-time, very common. Even this last week, a good friend of mine from Virginia was here, visiting from the, used to go to the church 30 years ago in Virginia Beach. It's great to see them, they're out here visiting. And he's semi-retired. And he does this on a Monday, he does that on a Wednesday. You know, like, you know when you do like four hours, twice a week or something of what you used to do and it keeps you busy. I like that. But you know what really matters for all of us in this room? Especially those of us that are older, advanced in years, there remains very much land yet to be possessed. There is no retirement. We want to pour it on. I'm quite certain when we step into eternity, we will wish that we would have poured it on more than we did for Jesus Christ. I'm quite certain when I get to eternity, I'll be like, oh, what was I thinking between 57 and 62? We we don't need to be slowing down. We need to be ratcheting up. We need to find another gear. That's what I think. Because there remains very much land yet to be possessed. For all of us in this room tonight, It's really important before we go our way that we understand that God has never done with us. He's never done working in us and through us for his good pleasure, to the glory of Jesus Christ, for his will, for all eternity. He's never done until we breathe our last. We want to go from glory to glory. We want to to take new steps of faith We want to embrace new adventures of of challenges and trials. We want to pass new tests. We want progress, not perfection, but we do want progress. And we need to be proactive and seeking the Lord for new ideas and new visions and new, new callings that he might put on our heart and on our life. We should be seeking the Lord now more than ever, not like how to retract or how to be frustrated, but how to engage and how to go forward and how to take greater steps of faith. Even today, I spoke with Brian Jameson from our sister church, OCCF, and we discussed a significant contribution of their ministry to Haiti, 
with Brian McDaniel. Because, of course, loss and everything else that's gone on in the last two weeks was yet again another horrible earthquake in Haiti and another horrible hurricane blasting Haiti. And we've been involved in ministry in Haiti for almost 20 years. And there's all this stuff they want to get there, but they needed the funds to get from point A to point B. And we cleared that out. We cleared the way for that today. Remember, Brian McDaniel shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with the president of Haiti days before he was assassinated just last month. Highlight it, circle it, establish it. There remains very much land yet to be possessed. There is a whole new adventure in front of each one of us with the kingdom of God. Now we read the rest of the chapter. This is the land that yet remained. All the territories of the Philistines, all that of Gershites, from Sihor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron northward, which is counted as Canaanite, the five lords of the Philistines, the Gazites, the Ashites, the Ashkenites, the Gideites, the Ekronites, also the Avites from the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Merar that belonged to the Sidonians as far as Aphek to the border of the Amorites, the land of the Gebelites, and all of Lebanon toward the sunrise from Baal God, below Mount Hermon as far as entrance to Hamath, all the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon as far as Ruk Mirafath, all the Sidonians. Them I will drive out from before the children of Israel, only divided by law to Israel's inheritance as I've commanded you. Now therefore divide this land as inheritance of the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. With the other half tribe of the Reubenites and the Gadonites received their inheritance, which Moses had given them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses and the Lord had given them from Ar, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the town that is in the midst of the ravine, and all the plain of Medab, all the plain of Medaba, as far as Dibon, all the cities of Sihon, king of, Ash- of the Ash- Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the border, the children of Ammon, Gilead, the border of the Gershites, the Machthites, all the Mount Hermon, all of Bashan, as far as Salka, all the kingdom of Og and Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and Edri, who remained of the remnant of the giants, for Moses had defeated and cast out these. Nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out the Gershites or Machathites, but the Gershites and the Kothites dwelt among the Israelites until this day. Only to the tribe of Levi had given no inheritance. The sacrifice of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said to them. So a quick look at verse 14. A quick look at verse 14. Only the tribe of Levi had given no inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance. Now remember, the church is compared to the priesthood. Remember that. And all these things were compared to the priesthood. So here, what do we see the Levites doing? What is there in the inheritance? For centuries to come, what is their inheritance? It's the sacrifices. It's the sacrifices. That's what we offer up. First Peter chapter 2. We offer up spiritual sacrifices. That's what we offer up. Ours is the sacrifices. That's who we are in 2021. Ours is the sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices, praise, prayer, intercession, worship, service. Ours is the sacrifices because we're the priesthood. And Moses had given the tribe of children of Reuben an inheritance according to their families their territory was from Aaron, which is on the bank in the river Arnon, and the city that is in the midst of the ravine and all the plain of Mediba. Heshbon, all of its cities are on the plain, 
Gibon, Bemoth Baal, Beth Baal Mion, Jehaza, Kedemoth, Mephath, Kirjim, Sibma, Zerath Shahar on the mountain of the valley, Beth Peor, the slopes of Pishgah, and Beth Jishmoth, all the cities of the plain, all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses had struck with the princes of Midian, Evi, Rechem, Zor, Hor, and Reba, who were princes of Sihon, dwelling in the country. The children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam, the son of Beor, the soothsayer among those who were killed by them. And the border of the children of Reuben was the bank of the Jordan. This was the inheritance of the children of Reuben according to their families, the cities, their villages. Well, there's Balaam. He just won't go away, will he? <laughs> we got a lot of Balaam over the last year. He just doesn't go away. And here we're just reminded, they struck him down. He was evil. Thousands of people died because of Balaam and his bad counsel. All they lived for, he lost, and he was struck down. Verse 24, notice the last verse as we come to the back end of this chapter. Moses had also given inheritance to the tribe of Gad, to the children of Gad according to their families. Their territory was Jazer and all the cities of Gilead and half the land of the Amorites as far as Aror, which is before Reba, and from Heshbon to Ramoth Mizpah and Betim from Mohammed to the border of Debir and the valley of Beth Hermon, Beth Nimron, Succoth, and Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, with the Jordan as its border, as far as the edge of the Sea of Chinnereth, on the other side of the Jordan eastward. This is the inheritance of the children of Gad, according to their families and the cities and their villages. So just think like, you know, square blocks in Garden Grove and Westminster and Huntington Beach and Irvine. This is their land. These are, this is what God's given them. This, they obeyed God and God gave them this inheritance. Verse 29. Moses also had given inheritance to half the tribe of Manasseh. It was for half of the tribe of the children of Manasseh, according to their families and their territory from Mahanim, all Bashan, all the king of Og, king of Basham, all the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan, 60 cities, half of Gilead, Ashtaroth and Edri, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan, were for the children of Michor, the son of Manasseh, for half the children of Michor, according to their families. These are the areas which Moses had distributed as an inheritance in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward. But the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord God was their inheritance, as he had said to them. So that's our last word for tonight. As all these people are getting their earthly inheritances, the Levites, who really are a type of the church in many ways, their inheritance is the Lord. Our inheritance is the Lord. No hyperinflation, no evil government, no defaulted 401ks, no bullying forced things can take our inheritance away from us. Our inheritance is the Lord. Our inheritance is the Lord. We were created by Christ and for Christ, and in him we consist. In him we move and have our very being, for he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come. And behold, I am coming quickly. Maranatha, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.